every time I hear that music, it's exciting to me because I'm so thankful for my friend, Phil Lager, who wrote that for this podcast. You can hear him even sing it more to the story on there with some cool harmony. And then it closes out the podcast as well. So you can find out information about Phil and his music in my show notes. It's a real blessing to have his help there. Um, secondly, I want to make sure you know that just last week we released this new study contender. It's a six week course. It's available online and it has been a blessing to put this together. And if you're interested in the topics that are mentioned here, kind of going deeper into the context of scripture, what we're going to talk about very soon here with, with Murray Vassar about women in ministry. I think you'll find this lesson incredibly, these lessons incredibly helpful. I have a bunch of bonus material, more than four hours of material, PDF documents available for you. So you can use it in a small group study. So, um, or in a, in a Bible study, or might even be something that uh, pastors could use as they prepare their own preaching. Um, their own sermons. So the book of Jude, Michael Green says, is uncomfortably and burningly relevant for our time. And I found that to be true too. So check out my website, andymillerthird.com for more information about this, uh, this course called Contender. Now on to today's content with Murray Vassar. Well, welcome to the More to the Story podcast. I'm so glad you've come along. And you might have clicked on this because you saw a really interesting title. And I'm so glad that you've come along to listen to this content material we're going to have today. Before we get started, I just want to make sure people know about a couple of things that are coming around for us. If you haven't got it yet, there is a free resource that's available for folks. It's called Five Steps to Deeper Teaching and Preaching. And it's a tool. It's a 45-minute teaching and an eight-page PDF document for people to use to get deeper in scripture that uses the inductive Bible study method with the aim of helping people get to a place of thinking about their end audience. So it's a helpful tool that I think people who listen to this podcast might find interesting. So you can get that for free if you sign up for my email list at andymillerthethird.com. That's andymillerii.com. I'm also thankful that this podcast is sponsor sponsored by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are training trusted leaders for faithful churches. We have bachelor's, master's, and doctoral programs that you could be a part of. And this podcast is brought to you by Bill Roberts, who's a financial planner who helps people, particularly who are working in Christian ministries to help plan for their, um, their retirement and all the things that go along with their own financial planning. You can find a link to him in the podcast notes. Well, I am really excited today to have on somebody I've wanted to have on for a while, and that is Dr. Murray Vassar. Uh, Murray, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so great to be here, Andy. It's, I've enjoyed your podcast, and it's a real privilege to be invited to, to be on it. Thanks. Well, Murray teaches with us at Wesley Biblical Seminary in adjunct capacity and other schools like Indiana Wesleyan. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and put some of your credentials out there. You might, wanna, not, might not want to talk about them, but Murray has done some great work, and he has an outstanding website where you can find information, um, uh, articles that he shares on a regular basis, some continuing education pieces in Greek. But he studied with kind of two titans of the evangelical movement. And um, that kind of caught my attention with uh, Ben Witherington and Craig Keener, who directed his doctoral dissertation. And who was it? Was Andrew Lincoln on there as well? Who else was your third person from England? John Barclay was the reader. <laughs> oh, yeah. And, and those of you who know anything about New Testament studies, like you've got the uh, Holy Trinity there of uh, New Testament scholars. So yeah, that was really, and you just finished your PhD in the last couple of years. Is that right, Murray? That's right. Last year I, I graduated. We won't be able to get into it here, but just tell us a, a, a snapshot of your dissertation, what you study. Sure. Well, my dissertation looked at the very controversial topic of slavery, um, particularly uh, the discussions of the slave master relationships and those texts that are called the household codes, 
in right. and Ephesians. So yeah, I love it. The topic of the dissertation. And I'd love for people just to get a quick summary of your trajectory toward the career that you're in now, functioning as a scholar and a teacher. Um, it's not your, your common path. Like you didn't go to go to Bible college, serve in ministry, go to, you know, not, not the typical path, because you have an interesting kind of other experience uh, that I, I would love for people to hear about. Sure. Yeah. Well, so I started out as a mechanical engineer in the in the space industry. I, I worked um, on some satellite projects uh, for a couple of years. And uh, then I, through ministry in my local church, I just felt that God was calling me to go in a completely different direction. So I, I left engineering and uh, started seminary at Talbot School of Theology in Southern California. And um, while I was going through seminary, I was able to uh, teach some physics classes at Biola, and Biola University, which is the university that Talbot is associated with. And so that gave me a love for teaching and I really enjoyed my studies in the New Testament and decided then to go on to a, uh, a PhD at Asbury and uh, pursue a career in uh, theology and teaching. So yeah, it's been a, it's been an unexpected journey, but I've, I've really enjoyed it. So uh, you're not exactly a rocket scientist. Would you call yourself a rocket scientist? Okay. <laughs> No, that's great. And um, also, even in this discussion here, I think it's helpful as we think about women in ministry and what goes along with that is like I, I come from that where I've primarily been in Wesleyan institutions. So I went to both Asbury uh, institutions in Wilmore. I teach at Wesley Biblical Seminary. I've been a part of the Salvation Army. I went to Southern Methodist University, which is in the Wesleyan tradition, though probably, I mean, I don't nobody would be surprised to say more on a liberal end of, of that tradition. So every every place I've always been uh, has been for women in ministry. But your background is a, a little different because you've come from institutions where not everybody would, would agree with those same things. Not that Biola has like kind of like a uh, official statement, but certainly there's professors who might be on both ends of the argument there. And, and so we're, we're going to talk about this. You had a very intriguing blog post to me. It's called why I changed my mind about women pastors. And so, uh, but before we get started in some of the exegetical pieces, I appreciate it at the very beginning of this article, you said, I remain sympathetic to the view that new, the New Testament prohibits the ordination of women. That's a posture at the beginning of this article that I think is helpful. You want to talk about that? Sure. Well, so, you know, as you mentioned, I, I did not come from a background that uh, supported the ordination of women. Um, I actually grew up in a very conservative Baptist church. So um, in, in line with uh, uh, Churches, uh, well, Bob Jones University, if you're familiar with that. Yeah, sure, sure. Associated with that um, stream of independent Baptist. Um, so I, I recall once as an undergraduate at Cedarville University. Now, Cedarville is uh, itself a Baptist school and, and quite conservative, um, right. but it was still, it still exposed me to a wider range of Christianity than I had had in my, the Baptist church I grew up in. And I remember there encountering uh, someone who believed uh, in the ordination of women and, and didn't think this is a problem and i remember being a bit scandalized like <laughs> bible don't you know you know the bible says very clearly um so i came from a background where i you know thought the bible was quite clear on this and um you know as i got went to seminary and learned more i 
came to see that uh, there's more to the story, as you might say. Oh, there you go. Uh, I came to see the issue was more difficult, um, but still for, for a long time, I thought that the um, case against the ordination of women uh, was, was really strong and, and, and convincing. And so gradually over time, I've come to, to the conclusion that actually I, I don't think um, the Bible prohibits this. Um, but as I say in the post, I remain sympathetic to um, the uh, complementarian view, the view that um, there is uh, a limit on women in ministry. Um, and the reason it is simply because I've, I've struggled with these passages and I've seen that um, there are certainly strong arguments that can be made on both sides. And so I don't view this as a clear-cut issue where, you know, if you believe the Bible, you're definitely going to take this one position. I think that right. Christians who believe the Bible can disagree. They're both sides um, are struggling to um, rightly interpret and apply the Bible. Yeah, absolutely. And, and those who are familiar with our podcast and follow it regularly might remember the conversation I had with Dr. Matt O'Reilly, where we talked about like kind of from the other end, kind of the and I, I even struggle, Murray, just what it's worth with even the complementarian egalitarian nomenclature, because there's a way that I, I affirm the complementary roles of the human body, like with it, the differences between men and women. And I want to emphasize that at the same time, like I affirm oh, women in ministry. But sometimes if I say, depends on where I am, if I say I'm, I'm egalitarian, well, that might uh, come with other assumptions. And the same thing true if I say I'm a complementarian. So I, I generally almost, almost avoid some that language, but just for the sake of, of um, saying something concisely here, on the complementarian side, there's a group of people who called out the orthodoxy or even the ability to claim like uh, the word inerrancy for people who would still affirm women in ministry. And that would be the case for my institution, like pretty, every professor at Wesley Biblical Seminary would affirm the role of women, of women being pastors. But at the same time, we also all uh, firm inerrancy. So that can't be true. So Matt Riley and I talked about that from that side, but I like hearing it too. I have, I have seen it from the kind of evangelical Wesleyan side where we treat those who still prohibit women in ministry as if they're not Christian, you know, as if they just don't, they, they're unenlightened people. And all of a sudden we start acting in funny ways. So I'm glad to see you kind of start the conversation that way. Like we need to have sympathy on both sides of this conversation, be charitable towards Absolutely. each other. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you, you, you do see this problem on both sides uh, where, you know, some on the egalitarian side will paint the complementarians as if, you know, they're just out to oppress women. And, you know, yeah. on the complementarian side, you see sometimes people paint this as the egalitarians don't, uh, don't respect the authority of scripture or something like that. And of course, both those extremes are, should be avoided. As you say, we need humility and charity in this discussion. Yeah. Well, I think you'll see more of that, those who follow along with what we're talking about in this, in this podcast. Now, before we get into content, I forgot the one announcement I'm supposed to say, and that is in July, you're going to see some resources coming out from me as I'm trying to, we're, we're putting out a study of the little book of Jude, just the 25 verses in Jude. So I needed to let people know, like I, I need to be remind, remind myself, this is coming out. You're going to see it at my website and I'm excited about it. Murray. I'd love to talk to you about Jude sometime too. I'm sure you have some things to say there. <laughs> so, okay, let's get into your uh, discussion here. The very first thing you talk about, what changed your view, what helped you, like, like three main points. But the first is the role of prophecy 
in the New Testament church. And so talk to me about this, because like, this is often with uh, the way we interact with the charismatic renewal and these type of things, the role of the prophet is often misunderstood as a spiritual gift or something that's used to edify the church. So what do you mean by prophet in the first place? Great. Yeah, well, um, there, first of all, just to, to one point here, that it is just indisputable that women did have this role of a prophet in the early church. Um, so, uh, for example, we have women prophets mentioned specifically in Acts 21, verse 9, on um, the yeah. daughter of Philip. Um, we have in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, when he uh, references the uh, passage from Joel, it speaks of both men and women prophesying. Um, and then, significantly, as we'll talk about more, I'm sure, is uh, in 1 Corinthians 11, uh, Paul mentions women prophesying. And so, um, you know, there's discussion on, uh, uh, because of Romans 16, 7, something that Paul says in Romans, at the end of Romans, whether or not women held the, the role of apostle. Right. Um, debate over that, and it's a very interesting discussion, but it's absolutely certain that women were prophets. Um, so then, you know, what is the significance of that? Well, what, you know, uh, I, I grew up, as I said, in a Baptist church that was very much a cessationist um, church. They didn't believe in uh, the gifts of tongues and um, healing miracles and that sort of thing. And so the talk of prophecy was often treated as something that was no longer uh, present in the church and something that was uh, more just foretelling the future and, and something that happened in the past. But um, as I got, you know, deeper into the New Testament, I, I came to see that prophecy was really um, something that was very important in the early church, and it involved uh, exhortation, uh, teaching, not, not simply foretelling the future. And this is especially clear in uh, 1 Corinthians 14. So Paul there is dealing with the issue of tongues, and he makes the case that, you know, while he speaks in tongues and while he's not opposed to tongues, he wishes more that the Corinthian believers would prophesy. And right. he gives his, his reasons for why. And if you read through that chapter, it's, he, he makes so many statements um, to the effect of the prophets encourage the church, they instruct the church, they teach the church, people learn um, from, from what the prophets say. And so, putting those things together that there are women prophets and that prophecy involved this uh, sort of activity in the weekly gatherings of the Christians, it just seems to me inescapable uh, that in the early church, women regularly stood up and gave exhortation and instruction to the whole assembly. Um, yeah, I'd encourage people throughout this podcast, this might be one where it'd be great for you just to grab your Bibles. Just to, to look at your Bible, open up your Bible so you can see what's happening. So as we're looking at these passages, 1 Corinthians 14, I think that that would be a helpful one. We're going to get on that. We're going to keep in it, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 as well. So the role of prophets is interesting because like in, in the tradition throughout the centuries, uh, maybe wasn't as misunderstood. For instance, in my tradition and in the Wesleyan Holiness tradition as a whole, we would often have, and this goes across denominations. I've been surprised as I've gotten to know more of the smaller holiness movement churches, denominations, um, there were often things called schools for prophets. 
Um, and that was the case for the early Salvation Army as well. Like we had a, a group, like a training program called Schools for Profit. But, but it, it was this, this idea. It might even be that what we think of a pastor in our time, the function of a pastor was what is described in the New Testament as a prophet. Is that the case? Do you think that's the case? Yeah. You know, when we, in First Corinthians 14, we get this window into what a, a typical weekly gathering looked like in the Corinthian church. And it seems like a bunch of people are standing up, you know, one after the other and sharing a word of encouragement or edification. And that could be a little bit hard for us to wrap our minds around because that's, in most of our churches, that's just not the way things work. One right. person, the pastor, gets up and speaks and everyone else just sits quietly taking notes. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I, I'm not here to say that's wrong or we, we should try to reduplicate what was done before, but it seems clear, however um, you, you look at it, that the prophets were fulfilling um, many of the functions that, that the pastor in our context fulfills in, in exhorting and instructing the congregation. Right. So this is what the, the, the challenge that comes to us then. As we look at this and we look at this material, if people are functioning as, pro as prophets and if prophets are building up, encouraging, exhorting, doing these things in the context of worship, then how do we think about this within the wider canonical dialogue with conversation, like when, when there are clear instructions to say women should not speak, right? So this that's, we, we put these pieces together. And so some would say, oh, that's just a contradiction or you know, some on one end just say, well, I just disagree with Paul. You know, I just don't, don't, don't think he's right. But do you, do you think we can come to a way of, of synth synthesizing these um, instructions then? Yes, I, I think we can. Um, yeah, we certainly don't. Uh, those of us who are evangelicals don't want to just <laughs> disagree with Paul and say he's wrong about this and, and we're, we're going to ignore what he said. And um, we want to take, uh, take this all seriously. Um, uh, of course, uh, uh, we believe that there is a unified message in, in the Bible, and we're concerned that. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've heard some say, some people naturally, and I think by like natural natural law or, or arguments, come to a place of affirming women in the ministry. They see its effectiveness, the spirit uses it. They might see some some particular passages, but I've heard some say, evangelicals maybe who haven't been uh educated in kind of like a with hermit like a hermeneutical approach like inductive bible study they might say well you know paul paul's not as important as jesus mm -hmm. and i say hold hold up <laughs> like uh, well let me let you respond to that when, when somebody says that in one of your classes how, how would you respond sure well i i think that is a a, a big a serious mistake um it, it, maybe it would be helpful in this point to remember that we don't have a book that Jesus wrote. Um, the Gospels were written by followers of Jesus. Um, and so they, uh, uh, even in the Gospels, we're hearing, uh, you know, interpretation and teaching from the followers of Jesus. Um, and the doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture uh, tells us that, that the, the words of Scripture have been um, God breathed and that they are the words that God wanted to to write. So um, the fact that, uh, you know, we have these documents that weren't written by Jesus himself um, doesn't take away from from their authority. Uh, if, if we accept the 
Christian teaching on the inspiration of scripture. Yes, absolutely. It's really helpful. And, and we see too, within the process of the way that the, the scripture has come to be part of the canon is that even uh, Peter in his letters ends up saying that Paul's letters themselves are scripture. So like we see this in, in the New Testament itself. Yes, that's a very significant passage there where he says that um, they, some people, it's interesting that he, he acknowledges that Paul's letters can be hard to understand in that passage. That's right. And he says that some people twist them as they do the rest of scripture. So clearly uh, identifying Paul's writings as part of scripture. So there is that canonization process we see already beginning to happen within the life of the early church. So that's really helpful. So we have the role of prophets as something that helped you, like one of the reasons you made a switch. Anything else you want to say about the role of prophets and, and women who served as prophets? One more point on that. Um, not only does the New Testament description of prophets lead us to believe that women were um, instructing and uh, exhorting the community, there is also interesting because the, the question of authority will come up in this specifically when we get to First Timothy. And it's interesting on the, the question of authority to know how Paul ranks the gifts. There, there are two times when Paul um, gives this ranking. And in both cases, he puts um, prophets uh, second right under apostles. Um, and uh, above other roles. So I think that that indicates that the prophets held a, um, a, a some level of authority in the, the early church. And so I think we need to keep that in mind as well um, when we're thinking about the significance of women uh, serving as prophets. Yes. And I, I remember uh, you, you talk about the apostles and prophets, the day, the very clear day where I was sitting in both of our, our shared teacher, Ben Witherington's class on Romans. And when he took about two hours and walked us through Romans 16. Okay. And, yes. and there are just some clear moments. And you addressed this earlier and you just mentioned the citation, but of, uh, of somebody of likely a woman being called an apostle in Romans 16. And that's referring to Andronicus and Junia or Junius. Like that's the, the, the tension is rather that Junia is a man or a woman. But what is so interesting to me in that passage that I've always appreciated and loved is like, Paul is saying that they, they were in Christ before I was, uh, and they are some exemplary amongst the apostles, but he says they were in Christ before I was. So these like, and he, he Ben Witherington thinks that Andronicus could be Andrew, the apostle Andrew, and also then thinks there's some other folks to um, have some, uh, uh, some theories about who Junia uh, could be, but there she called an apostle, but then you also have Phoebe in verse one of chapter 16 called a deacon. So I just, while we're, while, while you mentioned that passage, you want to say anything else about, um, uh, Romans 16? Yeah, well, there, there, there are two issues here. Um, the first is, is Junia a woman? And the second is, is Junia called an apostle? Right. Uh, so the, the first question seems to be pretty clear. It, it, it does seem to be clear that Junia is a woman. There's been a suggestion that this is an abbreviation of a male name, um, but that doesn't seem to be very, very likely um, from, from the evidence that we have. Now, the, the question, is Junia identified as apostle? That, that's probably a more difficult question. Um, the, it, it, the, it, the question is, how do we render this uh, Greek phrase? And I'll give you 
two examples of different translations here. The new revised standard version um, describes uh, these two, including Junia, as prominent among the apostles. Okay, so that suggests that they are, they are apostles. Um, the ESV, on the other hand, uh, gives the other understanding of this and uh, renders it well known to the apostles. Mm. So uh, uh, the idea here on this understanding of the passage is that Paul simply saying that they these people are known to the apostles, not that they're they are the apostles. Now, um, you know, uh, scholars are divided on this. Um, it does seem to be a, that a strong case can be made for understanding this as um, Junia being one of the apostles. Um, but I, I acknowledge that that point is disputed, um, but I think it's certainly a strong case can be made for that. Yeah, I think that's helpful here. And, and again, you hear the charity, I'm going to talk to my audience here, you hear the charity that Murray has here as he's saying that, like both could be the case. And I think that's as we approach this, we put piece together all of this data. That's how we come to our conclusion. We don't bring our presuppositions forward. We don't say, all right, we want to have women in ministry. Therefore, we're going to interpret the text this way. Instead, this is why we study Greek. This is why we look at the historical context. And this is why you might want to come to Wesley Biblical Seminary, right? Because we want to look into the process and we'll see where the text leads us. So I think that that's an important piece to keep in mind as we're working through this. Yeah, I'm glad you you bring that up because so often it's easy to approach Bible study as, as like, okay, I have my view on this. Now, how can I make the text agree with me? <laughs> or how can I you know, find an interpretation of this that agrees with what I already believe? So it's really uh, important and difficult, um, but we need to be going to the scriptures to listen to what they have to say to us and be willing to be challenged in our beliefs. And I think that's why it's important. Now, I'm not a New Testament scholar, but it would come within the realm of theology is where I sit more in homiletical theology to think about like establishing our doctrine of revelation at the start. Like how has God revealed himself? And in my tradition, it does that by affirming the scriptures of the Old New Testament as a basis for how we understand the, our, our faith. Like, um, so as we think about what Christianity is, we did define that within the context of how God has revealed himself in space and time. And so as we, if we start that foundation, then other things will follow from that. Of course, we want to be cautious, like always bring things back. I think sometimes we can be looked at as though we are narrow-minded in this, but no, like it starts with this foundation and, it, and then we're willing to argue and work through to find the best interpretation. And I think that that's what you've helped us do here as we think about women in ministry. Do you want to comment on, any, uh, on the doctrine of revelation as I just barely dab my toe in there? Oh, I, just to say that I, I agree with you on that. I think that's uh, it's very important to um, be coming back to the scripture and having that as our foundation as we um, wrestle with these, with these issues. I think it's, I might just add one point here. Yeah. It's good to have humility in this, you know, oftentimes you get the impression um, uh, that some some folks kind of think that the modern view has kind of discovered the truth, so modern, our modern cultural views, um, and uh, so the the Bible needs to somehow be brought up to speed with, with the modern uh, view, um, but I think we need to keep in mind that uh, the modern view might not be correct. Um, <laughs> I think that, Perhaps maybe even under the influence of um, like evolutionary theory and biology, um, people sort of get this idea that 
humanity is just constantly progressing and that the ideas of today are always superior to the ideas of tomorrow. Um, and I, I don't think that's necessarily the case. And as, as Christians, I think it's very important that we um, be continually going back to the Bible and uh, uh, the, the revelation of God and the scriptures and uh, allowing that to inform our views on these difficult topics. Now, you come to the Bible as, a, in part, it's your profession. Like you're you're a biblical scholar, but I'm curious, Mary. What before we get on to the um and the next two arguments, your own personal devotional life? Like how do you how do you come to scripture? Because it, it might be complicated because there, it's your job in a sense. But how, what do you do personally to come to scripture? Yeah, well, that's a great question. It, it's um my devotional life has looked different over the years. Right, I, currently I have um, two boys, ages two and three. And so oh, man. has given me less time in my life. Um, in this very busy season um, of my life, I've relied a lot on listening to uh, the Bible on audio as I you know, do the dishes or, or clean the house. Um, in other seasons of my life, I really spend a lot of time in memorization. Uh, I used to be uh, part of uh, memorization clubs and we get together and, and memorize um, uh, big chunks of scripture. And so that was something that was really helpful for me. Um, of course, the since, as you say, it is my job, I, I have to stay uh, up to date in the languages, so I, I try to incorporate that, a little bit of that every, every day, just looking at um, the Greek and Hebrew. Um, so, uh, yeah, it, it, it's changed depending on my season of life, but right now I, I have really appreciated uh, audio, uh, being able to listen to the Bible on audio as I, uh, as I do, do chores. That's, that's great. And the memorization that you have too comes in handy if you're changing diapers. You know, you can, can... <laughs> now, do yeah. you have any diapers? A two-year-old. Are you out of diapers yet? No, not yet. <laughs> okay. Bless you. I had seven and a half straight years in diapers. So uh, yeah. not me, not me personally, but uh, where I was changing them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this too shall pass. Okay. Yeah. The, the next thing that we want to talk about is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35. Now, this is going to be challenging, folks, if you haven't taken a class like in a New Testament introduction. Because, uh, and so before we get into it, Murray, could you just tell us what the discipline is of text criticism? Like as we look at that, and that might help us before we enter in the discussion of this passage. Sure. Well, the, um, the original letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, uh, the actual paper and ink that he sent them, uh, has not survived. Uh, all we have are copies. Uh, and for thousands of years, or for hundreds of years, over a thousand years, these copies were made by hand. Um, and as uh, that happened, scribes uh, sometimes made mistakes, sometimes even made intentional alter alterations to the text. And um, so this is the situation that gives rise to the discipline of textual criticism. And textual criticism is uh, the uh, discipline of looking through the various uh, manuscripts that we have available to us. We have over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of uh, the New Testament. We also have uh, citations in the church fathers, and we have uh, other ancient translations, like uh, translations into Latin and um, Syriac and Coptic. And so we have all, all these different ways of um, attempting to reconstruct the text and arrive at um, what the original wording was. And so that's the discipline of text criticism. Now, Perfect. Okay, great. We can, we can talk about that more perhaps as we go on. But. No, it's good. It's helpful to keep that in mind. So when people, if you happen to see a Greek New Testament, if you look at it and you open it up, you'll see, even if you don't read Greek, right? You can look at it and you can see that there's 
many footnotes throughout the whole thing. And, and half of the page likely is filled up with footnotes. And that's indicating like what the Greek New Testaments that you would see around the various versions are a consolidation, or correct me if I'm saying this, if I could say this better, Murray, uh, like a, a resource that brings together all of these textual traditions so you can see them in one place. Yes, and that's very helpful to note because there's uh, often confusion um, in the, the general public that because of this process of uh, scribes copying the New Testament, that the text has been lost. Um, but uh, while sometimes scholars disagree, or often scholars disagree about what the correct wording is in a particular passage, um, the options are all there in the, uh, at you, what you're describing there is called the textual apparatus, but it's just a list of the, the different variant readings. Um, so, um, you know, it's true that uh, occasionally scholars will disagree on what the correct reading is, but the options are right there uh, in the textual apparatus as, as far as what the different readings uh, are that survive in the manuscript tradition. And so if you haven't become in touch with this, like this is a, a helpful thing to, to think through. So as you hear what Murray's going to say now about these passages, so you've seen like there's a case that 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35 might not be authentically a part of the original letter. So let's talk through that. Sure. Um, so I want to say, first of all, that um, this is a tough issue. Um, right. It's not clear cut. And I don't think, in my opinion, I don't think that the argument against or, or the argument for women ministry depends on taking the view that, that I take um, that these verses uh, are probably not authentic, probably not from Paul. There are many scholars who do accept these verses as from Paul and who nevertheless um, do not think that they prohibit um, or they constitute a universal for all time prohibition of women in, in ministry roles. Um, so there we can talk about that. But in, in, in my view, I, I very tentatively um, think that these verses are uh, probably not um, authentic and probably not from Paul. And uh, there are uh, uh, some reasons uh, for that. First and probably perhaps most significantly, um, in context, these verses seem to prohibit women from speaking um, and specifically from prophesying in the church. Uh, this, these verses come right at, at the close of Paul's discussion in 1 Corinthians 14 about prophecy, which we mentioned earlier. Um, and at taken at face value, they, they seem to require women to be silent and not to uh, speak up or prophesy in these gatherings. And that's a problem because in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 5, so just a few chapters earlier, Paul explicitly says that uh, women pray and prophesy in the church. And he, in, this dis in that discussion in chapter 11, he argues that they need to wear head coverings when they do this, um, which is a whole nother discussion. Uh, but he seems to assume that they will be prophesying and, and praying in these gatherings. So that's one problem here is that it seems to conflict with what Paul said earlier. A second point to note is that these verses seem um, a, a bit of an intrusion into Paul's argument. If you, if you remove those verses, um, you, uh, it, the flow of Paul's argument seems to work better. Um, the verse that comes immediately prior to these two verses matches well with the verse that comes immediately after. We want to read these, like uh, even just read, uh, I can read it in, in an IV, or if you have your, your translation there, um, the, 
Yeah. So the New American Standard uh, Bible here, these two verses, 1 Corinthians 14, 34 through 35, um, say this, let the women keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but let them subject themselves just as the law says. And if they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Okay. So you're saying that, uh, that the flow of Paul's argument uh, is more lucid or is more connected if those verses are taken out. It, it seems to be uh, to me, yes. Um, so I can read you what uh, it would sound like if those sure. move. So here I'm going to read straight from verse 33 to 36, skipping those two verses I just read in the middle. Um, so starting in verse 33, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. Or was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or has it come to you only? So in verse 33, he references all the other churches. And in verse uh, 36, he's like, hey, it's not, it's not like you guys are the center of the universe here. It's not like this all came from you. You got to think about, you know, the other churches here. So these two verses seem to, to fit together so well. Yeah. So, so this, is, this might be challenging people because I'm just going to throw the, the, the cheap argument your way. And that is, Oh, you don't like those verses, so you just cut them out. Uh, yes. Well, you know, as uh, one one thing I'd point out here is that it's these verses are not just a problem for those who affirm women in ministry. Uh, those who um, are in the complementarian camp also have to struggle to explain how these verses can be understood with what uh, how how they can be reconciled with what Paul said in chapter eleven. And so, um, as I said, it seems to me that the straightforward reading of these verses is that women are just to be silent in the gatherings and, and aren't supposed to speak. Um, but uh, no one really takes that view uh, because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. So everyone has to say, well, this is only talking about certain type, uh, certain kind of speech. Um, and so there are different proposals that have been offered. Um, but the, the recognition that these verses do cause uh, some degree of tension with what Paul said earlier is uh, seen across the board, whether you're complementarian or egalitarian. So it's likely that there's not, there are not people who very many, very few denominations or church traditions would affirm this, like would actually practically live this out, like where, where women are completely silent in church. And what would this say about women who are single? Like, are they never to ask a question anywhere? Like, so where are they supposed to go? Uh, there's that side of it. Um, but then I, so, so how I've interpreted these passages through the years is I've looked at the, the big picture of what's going on throughout scripture and the trajectory towards women leadership. I've looked at, you know, women prophesying all the passages from Romans 16 that we've talked about. And then when I get here, I, I've just assumed, and this has been, been my take is like not, not ever even thinking about the textual text critical issues. I've just thought this has to be contextually focused. This has to be context bound. Like there must be something going on here, but you, you might, you're suggesting that that might not even be a part of the original context. Yes. Yeah. And, but I, I'm glad you bring up that point, Andy, because I, I think if they are part of that point, um, in, in some sense, it might even make the egalitarian case stronger because then you're really forced to assume that there is something going on here um, because of the conflict with chapter 11, verse 5. And so there is, you know, we can't just stick with a straightforward reading. There, there is something else going on that um, there has to be some sort of limitation on this. 
to make it align with what Paul says in 11 verse 5. But yes, for myself, I do, as I said, tentatively um, believe that the evidence weighs against the authenticity of these verses. Now, um, of course, there's a very powerful argument for accepting the authenticity of these verses, and that is this, that they appear in all the manuscripts that we have. We don't have a manuscript in which uh, they are absent. Now, this uh, speaking again to the issue of textual criticism, this is actually a, a good verse to talk about for those who are struggling with um, the idea that somehow the New Testament has been corrupted because of this process of scribal transmission. And you know, often in the popular thinking on this, uh, laymen who aren't um, who don't have a knowledge of the Greek and, and haven't studied this out, the idea is that the, sort of the New Testament has been hopelessly corrupted and we don't know what it says. But in actuality, uh, scholars are extremely hesitant to uh, accept the view that there was a change made to the text that affected all of the manuscripts we have and that the original reading isn't preserved in any of the manuscripts that survived. That is recognized as, as a very unlikely um, possibility. And so that's why so many people are, are uh, hesitant to accept uh, or to, to reject the authenticity of these verses, despite the significant um, internal evidence uh, that I've discussed the, like the contradiction with 11.5 against these verses. Um, so uh, in response to that argument that, that these verses appear in all of uh, the manuscripts that we have, um, there, is, uh, uh, there are manuscripts in which the order is, uh, th these verses are placed in a different position in the text. Okay. So, um, uh, Gordon Fee and, and others have argued that um, the best explanation for this is that um, these verses originated as a scribal insertion in the, in the margin, and that later scribes didn't know where to place it in the text. And that's why we have this issue of it being placed in, in different uh, locations in the text. Um, now, because it appears in all of our manuscripts, we do have to say that if this was an edition, it was a very early edition. It had to be very okay. early to, to have affected all of our manuscripts. But um, if these verses are not authentic, um, and if they were added by a scribe, it's, it's not correct to say that no trace of this has been left in the manuscript tradition, because we do have this displacement of these verses um, in, in the uh, manuscript tradition. Now, so well, let me see if I can uh, re-articulate what you just said. So in the tradition, like it's a part, like these verses are a part of all of the textual traditions that we have, but it might have been a scribal kind of insertion maybe kind of like on the side like uh, this is maybe anachronistic but on the margin so to speak um maybe pertaining to a particular situation who knows but it's become a part of this but it's not like completely certain that this would have been exactly in this place in the tradition yes it's not completely certain that it uh that these verses are authentic because of this displacement in the text um it, it is possible that this was a scribal insertion and that the scribes, because it was originally found in the margins, they didn't know where to put it in the text. And some scribes chose different locations. So what's this scenario with why a scribe, and this is, of course, we don't know the answer to this question, but why would a scribe in, make an insertion? Like, why would they put this here? Like, that, that brings up the question to me, because wouldn't that make it less consistent with the rest of the letter? Um, yes, that, so that's a good question. Obviously, we can only speculate. If this is indeed what happened, um, we can only speculate. Now, sometimes um, 
it seems that sort of explanatory notes were added or kind of commentary on the side and that sometimes these were uh, mistaken by later scribes as, as part of the text. Um, and so it could be that it's something like that, some sort of explanatory note that's trying to um, align this with what we read in First Timothy, which I, I assume we'll get to. In a few yes, months. yes. Um, so that the idea would be that the scribe is sort of under the influence of what was said in First Timothy and was bringing that over into this passage. Now, right. I did, on the text critical issue, I did want to mention just a, a couple of things on this. Sure. Um, there, there is a scholar um, named uh, Payne, Phil, Philip Payne, and he has argued um, that uh, there are, in some manuscripts, there are markings that indicate that uh, the, the scribes who produced that manuscript were unsure of the text because they had access to, um, to manuscripts that did not have it. Um, now, if that's correct, that would be extremely uh, strong and good evidence uh, in favor of re, uh, not considering these verses authentic because that would indicate that we that there were manuscripts that did not have these verses. Um, but I, my impression here is that Payne's arguments have not um, won wide, uh, uh, wide acceptance, that they, they have been challenged significantly. But um, listeners should be aware that that discussion is, is happening. Um, we're, and it, uh, the debate just concerns how do we interpret these markings that we find in manuscripts. And again, Payne's argument has been that some of these indicate um, that uh, scribes were unsure about this verse or these two verses because they weren't um, uh, found in some of the manuscripts they were using. That's great. I think like you're presenting this holistic argument, though, kind of thinking about how this how we look at these various passages throughout the New Testament. And, and like even without this data, I feel like people have solid ground to move forward with thinking of women in ministry, even just based upon the role of prophets that you said. But this is kind of presenting more of a cumulative case, like as we add these pieces up. Anything else you want to say about First Corinthians before we move on? Um, yeah, a couple things. I uh, one thing that interested me that so the Net Bible is a really helpful translation. Of yes, the Bible. It includes a lot of um, notes, uh, very detailed notes about issues of Greek and Hebrew translation and, and text critical issues, and uh, it's produced by scholars that are associated with Dallas Theological Seminary, I believe, and come generally from a complementarian point of view. So they take on all these disputed passages. They they take the the complementarian position. But I thought it was interesting that on this passage on 1 Corinthians, they actually suggest that this was a, a note that was added in the margin, but that it was added by Paul himself. Okay. Uh, now, I don't think that's very likely, but I, I just the fact that the Nat Bible takes that view, I think, indicates um, that there is really a, a strong case to be made for understanding these as uh, not being part of the original letter, but as a, a later insertion in the margin. Um, you know, it's not just uh, people who, who don't like these verses and want to get rid of them. There is, there are some real, real problems here that would lead even, um, even the uh, translators of the Net Bible to suggest that maybe, maybe that was a, a, an insertion, but just say that, that Paul did it himself. Oh, yeah. Let me give you a comment. I know you have something else to say. My, my listeners really check out the Net Bible. You can find it on the net as well. Um, but it is a, it's a great resource and you can find all these exegetical tools or these uh, um, uh, translation tools on there as well. But in, you can get a printed version as well, but it's incredibly thick if you get the printed version, but it gives so much information as to what's going on in the translation and why they've made the decisions. Most of the time, you're not going to find, you'll find like the most 
controversial issues covered, say in the NLT or the NIV and NASB, like you'll find like when you see the footnotes, know that that probably means like hundreds and hundreds of pages of scholarly discussions. Okay, when you see any footnotes there, but the Net Bible gives you their um, translation perspective on most passages. It's outstanding. It really is. I just to echo that, Andy. I you know as someone who's in New Testament scholarship, I very rarely come across an issue that is not treated at, at some depth in the New Testament, uh, in the new, uh, uh, I think it's called the, the Net Bible, I think it stands for New e English Translation, is that, is that right? Yes, that's what I've thought, yeah. Yeah, the, the notes are just, yeah, they're, they're very good, they're very thorough, and it's unlike a study Bible that sometimes just gives you glosses about, you know, this, this verse means this, um, and just kind of lets you move on. This really goes into great depth, and sometimes even has um, the titles of scholarly articles that deal with these questions in, in more depth. So it's a great resource. Yeah, I encourage people, and this comes back to the same idea, like we're thankful for study Bibles. Like they're, they can be a blessing in our devotional life, but sometimes it's, it's almost like um, eating your dessert first uh, at a meal. Like you can, you, you take somebody or even reading the message paraphrase, like you get that interpretation first when instead of, like going and looking at the passage itself. And that's, that's why I encourage people to do on this, my, my a tool that I offer for free, these five steps to deeper teaching and preaching is like, I plead with preachers and in my preaching classes, I plead with them. Do not jump ahead to look at somebody else's interpretation, right? Like let's, let's get, let's see what the text says first and get, and I say like, and that's, what's ultimately going to feed the congregations you serve is you're going to be in a place where you're going to get your own soul into the text or the text into your soul like uh first okay that's my own little, little slant there uh let's get uh, i i know did you have something else you really wanted to add about first corinthians very quickly i'll just say okay, yeah. I mentioned, uh, as far as the internal arguments against the authenticity one being the apparent contradiction with chapter 11 two being the um apparent uh, interruption in the flow of paul's thought and a third point um, that uh, should be mentioned at least is that many scholars are puzzled by the appeal to the law here when yes. Paul let them subject themselves just as the law says. And there are two problems with that. First of all, where does the law say that? What, um, you know, what, what is Paul referring to here? And secondly, um, is, is it likely that Paul would appeal to the law in this way to settle a, a matter um, of uh, uh, the freedom of women in the assembly of the church? So, um, those that has been also cited as uh, an indication that this didn't come from the hand of Paul. So even just the exegetical point in itself makes it even if it was if there was no problem with the authenticity of the passage in the text, the exegetical points within it create a problem that help lead to a cumulative case for you to for us to maybe question their authenticity. Yes. Um, and sorry, one one more point, just on yeah, yeah. Closing. So while I said, you know, I'm very tentative in my uh, conclusion that that these are not um, authentic. The significance for this debate is we only have, you know, there's there are many passages that seem to indicate that women um, had these roles of speaking and, and uh, exhorting and instructing in the church, and we only have a couple of passages where that uh, that picture seems to be contradicted. And in one of those passages, the one in First Corinthians, it's a strong argument can be made that it's not authentic. So that gives me great hesitation in using that passage to um, adjust my understanding of other passages that, that seem so clear in the New Testament. Yes, that's a great point. The, 
yeah. Okay. I'm going to read this next passage. I want to move on. I know we only have so much longer. So, but first, first Timothy two, 11 through 15, I'm going to read it here. Um, in the translation that you have, um, a woman should learn in silence with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to be silent for Adam was created first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed, but she will be saved through childbearing. If she continues in faith, love, and holiness with good judgment. Okay. Murray, help us here. Okay. Well, yeah, you know, your listeners may be very disappointed with uh, what I have to say on this verse, because essentially my, my argument here is that this verse is just very confusing. It's not, it's not clear um, what is being uh, taught here, um, especially that last verse there about women being saved through childbearing. Right. Um, you know, the, uh, again, I'll, I'll reference what the net Bible says on this. They, I think they make a great point. Um, you know, a straightforward reading of this seems to suggest that a, a, a woman, in order to be saved, needs to have children. But as the uh, net, uh, the editors of the Net Bible notes, um, we must reject that interpretation because <laughs> it's unsupported elsewhere in Scripture, and it's explicitly against Paul's teaching on both marriage and salvation. And so, I just would submit that we have a similar difficulty here in the first part of that passage. Certainly a straightforward reading of this seems to suggest that women are just to be silent in, in the church. But again, um, that uh, seems to go against what's said elsewhere in the New Testament um, on this topic of, of women in church. So my, my conclusion here on this was that, you know, just as it would be unwise for us to build our theology of salvation on the foundation of, uh, you know, verse 15 uh, about women being saved through childbearing, I think it is also unwise to build um, our theology of women in ministry on the foundation of, um, you know, verse 12, um, because I think this is a very difficult passage that uh, is, uh, it, it's unclear what exactly is, is being taught here, and, and it, there's um, just as it's, uh, it would be very hazardous to just take a straightforward reading of verse 15 and just run with that, I think we would have to say the same about the earlier part of, of the passage as well. Yes. It, that is such a helpful point. I've often been confused by that. And I've like, I've thought about it before. And I've thought about it in the context of like what, what we said earlier about the nature of our bodies, and that there's something about the mystery of our bodies that's like communicated in that and the, uh, like the importance of women in childbirth, like they're the only ones who can do that. But nevertheless, like I, it doesn't seem to line up like salvation and there's, can't be talking about something else. I mean, the way that Paul thinks about uh, salvation, it just doesn't seem consistent with what he says in other places. And what, but, but some would suggestion, like I've just gone down the road that this is, again, this is like a non-New Testament scholar perspective. Like Paul's obviously dealing with like a particular limited uh, instruction here. Like it's not meant to be like universal in light of the other picture, but what, what do you think we should do with this passage as a whole? Do you think there's a, does yeah. it fit? Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's a, a great point. Um, there must be something more going on here, some limitation, some caveat that's not explicitly stated. Um, and so, you know, I think that's why um, we need to be careful about just taking the straightforward reading and, and running with that. Um, you know, as far as what, what is going on here in verse 15, um, you know, I, I, one of my professors at Talbot, um, Moyer Hubbard, 
uh, he, while I was there at Talbert, he gave a presentation on a paper that he'd written on this verse. And he made the argument that um, uh, the word for, sal for saved here is not actually talking about spiritual salvation, it's talking about physical deliverance. And so the idea here is that this is a sort of a pastoral um, affirmation and, and encouragement that women would be preserved through the process of childbirth, which was, of course, in the ancient world, very dangerous, very painful, very frightening. Um, mm. But, you know, it, it was it was a great presentation, a great paper, and uh, he makes a, a strong case. But at the end of the day, I just um, I, I'm not completely satisfied by that explanation. It seems that given the context um, that verb for salvation does seem to carry more the sense of a spiritual salvation and not just a physical deliverance. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a tough passage. Um, we, we certainly wouldn't want to say that salvation is restricted to those who have children um, and that somehow single women are, are excluded. That's, that's clearly uh, against what Paul believed because he um, stated very clearly a preference for singleness. And, and right. So there's also the case, like I've, I've often struggled like to try to understand. And, and sometimes you just arrest that fact, like I'm not going to be able to understand everything. But the, the argument, like if Paul's what, what type of argument Paul might be making in verses 13 and 14 for Adam was created first, then Eve and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Well, like, what does that mean about women in ministry? Like, I'm, I don't get it. Like what you're saying there. And then much less like, well, wasn't even if, uh, uh, wasn't Adam deceived as well? I mean, it wasn't just just a woman. So the the argument in itself doesn't that Paul's making doesn't seem to lead toward prohibiting women to be in church. Like I just don't uh, like in, in the assemblies. Yes, yeah, um, uh, that's true. It's, it is that those verses are unclear. I think maybe um, the those on the complementarian side would. Uh, focus in on that issue of authority in verse 12 okay would somehow see the connection there um, as as one of you know supporting the idea of, of men having authority over women um, it's, it's a tough a, a tough issue here a tough passage and one thing that um, your listeners should be aware of that makes this uh, even uh, a little more tricky is that the Greek words rendered man and woman can also be rendered um, husband and wife and oh, so, interesting. You know, it, it, it's uh, one possibility that I, I think is um, makes as much sense as anything else is that uh, what's going on here is that there was some sort of um, way in which the women's uh, in Ephesus, uh, which is where Timothy was, uh, their participation was uh, somehow seen to um, upset the household hierarchy. Of, of husband and wife, and perhaps, you know, maybe the woman is um, rebuking her husband in public or correcting him in public. And uh, there's, there are a number of passages in the New Testament that talk about um, women submitting to uh, their husbands. And specifically, um, on at least, at least two occasions, this specifically tied to the reputation of the community um, in, uh, in the eyes of uh, surrounding mm. uh, secular society. And so in the ancient world, it was expected that the woman would follow the religion of her husband. Um, this is what uh, Plutarch says this, for example, that women should believe only in the gods that her husband believes in and should, in his words, um, shut the door tight on all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. 
And so Christian, um, the Christian community, uh, and we know this also from the writings of the second century uh, pagan critic of Christianity named Celsus, uh, he accused uh, Christians of disrupting the household hierarchies. Um, and so there seems to be a concern to um, avoid uh, causing offense in this way to surrounding culture, and that, that may be the reason for the emphasis. So it may be that, that there's something along those lines that are going on in the community, um, and that it's this specific issue of um, behavior that's disrupting house, the household hierarchy um, that is, is the concern. Um, so again, it's just, just a speculation. Uh, yeah. That's, that's a possibility. And that probably that's connected to to your doctoral dissertation work, thinking about the household code and how it interacts with slaves. Um, I think some people might not have even heard that ter term before the household codes. I always have to say it slowly, Murray, because I household code. It does, I get them mixed up. Yes. Um, whenever I talk about the household code, it's kind of like I, I've used the illustration and I say this in front of you because you can correct me if this is not a good way of saying it. But I say like if I was when 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 I as a Cubs fan, when I would sing, take me out to the ball game, when it gets to the part where I say, for its root, root, root for the home team. But Cubs fans always say, root, 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 with Harry Carey in mind, root, root, root for the Cubbies. That's what we say. Well, we are taking a, a convention in society, <laughs> take me out to the ball game, and we are adapting it for our use. Like we're saying, no, it's not good enough just to say, uh, root, root, root for the home team. We've got to say the Cubbies. And we're adapting in our way. So it's as if like Paul takes these household codes, this convention writing tool for his time, and he asserts a different way to think about certain things and gives women greater, puts freedom, women on a greater freedom or trajectory towards freedom and the same thing for slavery. Um, would you, what do you think of my illustration there? Do I need to edit it? <laughs> Well, um, it, the, the question uh, is, what did the household form as this um, kind of literary form, did it exist in the surrounding community? Was it just taken over by the, the Christians? Um, there are certainly people who have argued that. Um, it, it seems to me that, that it didn't actually um, exist in a, in a strict form like that literary form that they borrowed. Now, it's certainly true that, that the ideas that um, of proper household relationships um, that are present there are related to discussions that were happening in wider society. But as far as a, a literary form that was just taken over, um, and, okay. to, and that, to, um, in my view, that uh, the evidence really hasn't ha hasn't um, borne out for that view. That was it's certainly a view that many have held, but um, the yeah the, the it's. People have struggled to produce an example of a okay that matches this. A little caution to my illustration. No problem. I'm. I want to be accurate. I want to be biblical. It, it. This is kind of the interesting thing. Is like often I've heard people say like, well, the uh, Paul baptized the household codes. So that might not. It might not be a literary convention, but certainly the idea of talking about it in this way and putting maybe these categories in place of um, husbands, wives, husbands children, husbands, slaves was something that people might have talked about regularly. Absolutely. And so you, your, your point, I, I don't think depends, your, your main point doesn't depend on the idea that this was a, form, a literary form that was taken over. It could also work on the idea that Paul is adjusting 
so he's starting with sort of basic uh, conventions in society and adjusting them in a in a Christian direction. Um, so that that I, if I take it that is your sort of your main point. Yeah, thank thank you for helping me. <laughs> I'm brought back. I'm not I'm not knocked down too many too many notches here. Just just one notch. Uh, that's good. So um and and I I'm, I'm always so glad. I love. I'm not a, a biblical scholar. Some people don't get the distinctions um, between different types of uh, theological scholarship, but uh, I always love the opportunity to get, and it does, you know, our other, one of our, our New Testament, our full-time New Testament professor on staff here, Dr. Rick Boyd, he also, I don't know if you know, was a mechanical engineer. It must be a, a common thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I, I always appreciate uh, being around uh, biblical scholars who have worked with the languages and worked in the original context because it helps me, you know, it helps me preach better. Uh, Murray, this has been such a helpful conversation. So I just want to rearticulate like what we've said, what you've, what you've presented. So you're somebody who grew up in this tradition where you didn't see women in ministry, didn't see women as pastors, but thinking about the role of prophets within the New Testament context was one, one key piece. And then you look at the textual tradition connected to first Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, and kind of see some of the challenges with that. And then the exegetical piece with understanding 1 Timothy 2 and like how that argument doesn't line up, but particularly related to the um, salvation, being women being saved through childbearing, led you to a place where now you affirm women as pastors, but you're not, you do that tentatively. So that's a, a summary of our conversation here. So practically, and we'll finish with, finish with this, um, what has this meant for you? Like, do you attend a church now? Have you listened to women preach? Uh, like, how, how does this, how has this affected your life in a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, sure. Well, yes, I do attend the church. I attend the Western church where, where women do preach on occasion. And um, so, yes, that, that uh, is one way that's impacted me. Um, so, yeah, I think your, your summary of, of my view there is correct. Um, I, you know, I think that the, uh, there's clear indication from the New Testament, particularly with the discussion of prophecies, that women did hold these roles of teaching, instruction, exhortation in the church. And the only two passages which appear to contradict that view um, both have some real difficulties. Um, First Corinthians is uh, textually uncertain. And if, if it is there, it's in a very difficult contradiction with what's said in chapter 11. And then um, the passage in First Timothy is recognized by everyone to be a very difficult passage because of the statement of, of women being saved through childbirth. And so given that, um, I'm, I'm very hesitant to uh, 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 claim that there's scriptural warrant for um, objecting to women in ministry when it seems to me that um, the, uh, the cl uh, more clear passages in the New Testament do support that picture. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Mary. Before we close, I want to um, give people a chance to the title of our podcast. There's more to this story. And you get that for this conversation. Like it's not just a 30 second sound bite um, about thinking about this difficult issue as the church has wrestled with this through centuries. There's more to the story and we could go on further for sure, uh, even on this topic. But I also like to think, is there more to the story of Murray Vassar? Is there something you like to do or do with your family? What's more to the story of Murray? Sure. Well, you know, I grew up in an interesting place. I grew up uh, on, in the Four Corners area, um, so uh, northwest New Mexico, uh, on the borders of the Navajo and Ute reservations. And um, I really enjoyed the, uh, you know, hiking and climbing in, in that area of the world. The, uh, I love climbing the mountains of southwestern Colorado. 
Uh, it's my, my thing to do when, when I get a chance to go out there and um, climb the 14ers, they're called. They're the yes. 14,000 feet. So, um, yeah, that's one, one thing I, I really enjoy doing. Awesome. Uh, my fa- we were, we weren't in the Southwest Colorado. We were up in Estes park. My boys and I, we didn't have time to get to the, uh, Long's peak, the 14 or there, but we did get, uh, you know, we did seven hours and we had the sunburn to show it too, because the, the snow, the snow got us, <laughs> but we love that stuff. Murray, yep. thanks so much for your time. Now where there's, there's just no mountains at all. And <laughs> sometimes people will call a hill a mountain and I'm no, no. That's not enough. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. Well, thanks so much for your time, Murray, and for your study. It means a lot to, to me personally. It's helping me think through these passages better and helping the church. We're thankful that you're serving in the vocation you are, and God's certainly using it in, at Wesley Biblical Seminary with our students, but I know too in other places as well. So thank you for your time. Well, thank you for having me, Andy. This has been, been a wonderful experience. Thank you so much. <laughs>